Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? I know we have some visitors here from the conference. That was an incredible conference, wasn't it? For those that were here, it was just outstanding. Um, and again, like I said from the pulpit, earlier, 181 volunteers that were just so, such a blessing. And some of you were there too, so thank you for all of that. Well, this morning we return to our series on the Psalms titled Certain Truths for Uncertain Times. And as we, we return to what is essentially the introduction of the Psalms, namely Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Originally, some Jewish historians considered Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as being one psalm. Psalm 1 beginning with the beatitude of blessing and then Psalm 2 ending with blessing as well. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are in many ways officially the beginning of the book. So open your Bible with me and turn to Psalm 2, the first of what is called the royal psalms in the Psalter. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel to Yahweh and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath in him. It's the reading of God's word. The entire world, I think, knows by now that on September 8th, 2022, Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain breathed her last and died at the age of 96. She ruled the throne for 70 years longer than any other British monarch. Now, Prince Charles II has now, King Charles III has been made King of England and his coronation is forthcoming. Now, we can only imagine what that coronation is going to be like, but if we compare it to Queen Elizabeth's coronation, we can rest assured it's going to be full of pomp and circumstance. Because Elizabeth's father, King George VI, had died unexpectedly, the young princess was therefore catapulted into the throne at the age of 25. Out of respect for the king's passing, her coronation was delayed, allowing the coordinators to have a massive 14 months to prepare for that one-day gala. It was truly able to enjoy the pageantry that otherwise it would not have ever been able to witness. It followed a similar pattern as all of the other coronations of kings and queens that had come before her, being held in Westminster Alley, Westminster Abbey, and involving the aristocratic folks and the clergy. And yet what was possibly the most important part of the day was the, king, the queen's coronation speech. She said this in part, I am sure that this, my coronation, is not the symbol of a power and a splendor that are gone, but a declaration of our hopes for the future and for the years I may, by God's grace and mercy, be given to reign and serve as your queen, end quote. 
Then after that, she moved to the King Edward's chair where the Archbishop of Canterbury asked the audience in each direction separately, Sirs, here I present unto you, Queen Elizabeth, your undoubted queen. Wherefore, all you now are come this day to do homage and service. Are you willing, Elizabeth, every time to each person he would turn and the queen would curtsy at every request. And then after all these rituals, the Bible was presented to Elizabeth saying, our gracious queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and of the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing in this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Now, you certainly understand that all that pageantry is external. All of that is merely a uh, shadow of the truth. There is no real expectation that once Charles III takes the same oaths that somehow mystically the monarch of England is now going to be a king who rules and defends the truth of Scripture. But a coronation like that is very much, whether it's intentional, deep down inside the hope of every believer. One day there will be a coronation on this earth of a ruler who will reign in perfection and honor. One day there will be a king who will subdue all evil and who will demonstrate to the entire world that he is the true ruler, that he is the true sovereign, that he is the true Lord of lords and kings of kings. And this psalm before us this morning is the one that pictures that coronation. And it is both an encouragement to believers and a warning to the world. Now, before we start to unpack this entire section of scripture, I want to remind you once again of what I said at the very beginning of our time just now. That being, at one time, this psalm was considered by many ancient Jewish historians to be a combination of Psalm 1 and 2. They were actually one psalm together as an introduction to the Psalter. Now, some of the reasons for that, I said, were fundamentally the fact that Psalm 1 begins as a beatitude of blessing, hymnal of Israel. But there's some other noticeable contributions here and comparisons that I want you to look at. If you have your Bible there, look at them side by side. If you see in Psalm 1, the author speaks of how the blessed man is who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, verse 1. And then you'll see in Psalm 2 how the wicked rulers, verse 2b, all counsel together with one another. They are those who do walk in their own wicked counsel. Again, if you look at Psalm 1, you'll notice the man who is blessed meditates day and night on the law of Yahweh. And then you'll notice in Psalm 2, verse 1, the peoples of the nation who are against Yahweh also meditate, but they don't meditate on Yahweh. They meditate on a vain thing. Also, when you go to the New Testament, you'll notice that in the book of Acts chapter 13, 33, where the apostle Paul quotes this psalm, that in some ancient manuscripts, it says that the quote came from Psalm 1, and others say Psalm 2, one time considered one. So regardless of the number of the psalm, it is irrefutable to say that both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 act as this perfect introduction to all that we're about to study in the year ahead of us, and in many ways act as the key verses for the next 148 psalms to go. Also, Psalm 2 is considered the first of the royal psalms, meaning that this collection of 11 psalms throughout the book that focuses on the celebration and the enthronement of the monarchy in Israel. They're thought to be part of the liturgy that was used to the initial coronation of the king as he took his throne. So what we have here in Psalm 2 essentially is a song 
that was a part of a collection that was to be sung by the choirs at an appropriate time, but certainly also at the coronation of kings when people needed to be reminded that God had installed their king and threats from other nations would certainly fail. Backdrop of what we have here. So as you can tell, this psalm is a very, very important psalm, not just because of the royal nature of the psalm itself, but because it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want to frame our thoughts toward this psalm, Psalm 2, first and foremost, by looking at it in its original setting. And then I want to look at it as the nation of Israel would understand it before we go to the New Testament and also show how important it was to also our Christian beginnings. So today we have before us, if you're taking notes, four scenes from the drama of God's coordination of his son. Four scenes, or you even could say four pictures of the crowning of Yahweh's king that should comfort the people of God and call them to repentance, especially the rulers who oppose him. So here in Psalm 2, if you're taking notes, again, four scenes. The rebellion of the nations is questioned, verses 1 through 3. The mockery of the Lord is proclaimed, verses 3 through 6. Worship of the Son is demanded, verses 10 through 12. And I'm going to go back over that so you don't have to worry if you didn't catch them that quickly. But it's important that you know that each of these four scenes in this cosmic drama come to us from the mind of God himself to assure his people that his sovereignty is sure and their safety is forever. So regardless of what we see in the world around us, Regardless of the wickedness and the rejection of all that God has proclaimed, the reign of his son is absolute and the protection of his children is guaranteed. So let's look at this psalm together and look at this first scene. The cosmic drama is seen in verses 1 through 3 in a a scene you could title, The Rebellion of the Nations is Questioned. The Rebellion of the Nations is Questioned. Look again at verse 1 with me. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand and meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So we come to this very first scene in the wonderful psalm that we see with the world lying wide open before us. It's almost like a panoramic kind of fashion where all the nations and the peoples and the kings are all seen at once, and they're seen with the emotions and actions that are laid bare before the reader. With just in this one psalm, the writer is going to take us first in a sweeping view of all the earth, and then he's going to take us back up to heaven, and then he's going to thunder back to earth again to make a very important point. But here in this first scene, he begins before us a vision of such utter amazement that the narrator takes a moment to express the profound sense of astonishment for what he's seen, of all of the evil that's taken place on the face of the earth. It's as though he frames this as a question, you understand, not the kind of question where you're really asking for the answer, but it's like a rhetorical question that he gives, an expression of just total bewilderment and indignation for what he sees is transpiring right before him. What does he see? Well, verse 1 says, nations, nations, not one, but many nations and their people and their rulers all seething with anger and focused on devising a plot to override Yahweh and his anointed one. So this picture is a picture of rage. It's a picture sometimes used of the raging of the sea. But here the word signifies a deep sound actually of a growling lion. 
in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the verb that's used here literally describes the actions of high-spirited horses and neighing and stomping as they prepare to run into battle. So what is the cause of all this raging? What is the cause of all this upset? Because the nations and their rulers meditate and take their stand and counsel together to consider how they might, in verse 3, tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords. The rage, it says here, is because they can't in some way escape the cords, verse 2b, of Yahweh and his anointed. Now, this is astounding. They are obsessed, follow me, with stripping away any entanglement to the things of God. They, they rehearse over and over again the ways that they could possibly imagine to try to disconnect themselves from the imprisonment that they feel associated with God being king. The nations in this state of mind are repressed by God. The, the rulers in this section, under the rule of Yahweh and his anointed, or as you know in the Hebrew, his Messiah. They are held by his chains and they are tied up by his restraint. Now, the question that might be in your mind, certainly came into mind, was when was Israel ever a world power? When would this scenario ever take place? When does the Bible ever paint the nation of Israel in such a way that the surrounding nations felt like they were being ruled by Israel? They have, they have us in fetters, they say. They have tied us up in cords. When historically... Have we ever come to a point in the time of Israel's reign that we ever see it being a world-dominating force? Even when King David was alive or when his son Solomon ruled the people, their strength was only just enough that they might be able to resist being led into captivity and exile. But they were never seen as the empire of this kind of domination. Here in Psalm 2 must take place in the future. It must be a future gaze. It must be a future unfolding of prophecy. Now, certainly there's other places in Scripture, if your mind is going there, where you see the nations plotting against Israel. True, uh, Psalm 83, verse 4 through 8 says, They have said, Come and let's wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they have conspired together with one mind against you, meaning God, they make a covenant. That is true. But what's different in that psalm or that portion of Scripture from Psalm 2 is the fact that here the nations feel like they're under bondage and they want to revolt against the God of their imprisonment. So this is an international conspiracy against Yahweh and His Messiah. Now, some people would say this is true because the psalm here is merely a psalm that is expressing a kind of hope that one day scenario that this might be true, that this and the people... When the reality is, it didn't ever take place in history. They say that when this psalm was written, it was actually thought that there was no king on the throne, no Davidic king at the time. So perhaps it was just a psalm that acted as a kind of reminder of what could be one day. But still, you have to grapple with it, don't you? That where is this in point of history that Psalm 2 is actually pointing? One comment on that before we move on. In some ways, it's true that in the history of the world, that the nations and people have felt that they were being restrained by the expression of their sinfulness because the gospel had influenced their country. The gospel had influenced their nation. This, of course, is the Puritan conference that just concluded. And so I think of the time of the Puritans when the installation of Oliver Cromwell took place, the Lord Protector of England. And it was true as a devout Puritan 
He believed that people ought to live their lives. Sure. The English Puritans wanted people to live just very simple lives, stripped of all the accoutrements and leisure and wealth. And Cromwell believed that it was pointless to have entertainment that was sinful while sports and entertainment were banned. He also banned the theaters. The theaters were all closed and plain dress was enforced. Sunday was a holy day to the entire nation, a Puritan rule, which meant that work was not allowed. People who were found to be doing unnecessary work on Sunday could even be put in stocks, uh, while even walking anywhere that wasn't church could result in a fine. Even outlawed the celebration of Christmas because he wanted to keep it a holy day and not just a day for commercialism. When he died... Charles II came back from exile. He opened the theaters. He encouraged the most vulgar kind of plays that Cromwell's, and had Cromwell's body dug up from the grave and symbolers removed. That's the picture of the world we live in today. That is the same thing, although the politicians of our day and the rulers may not admit it openly, though they are tending to do it more often, they are against Yahweh. They are deeply in their heart hating the word of God. They hate it's so much so that they will defend the killing of babies in the womb, even as our governor of California has done. The hatred of things of God, the rage of the kings of the earth, feel toward the true king of kings and lord of lords, boils so much underneath their words, it's like murder. The murder of God is their agenda. The, the murder of God both then and now. It's always been this way. From the Tower of Babel, from Sodom and Gomorrah, from King Nebuchadnezzar, to the kings of England, to the presidents of the United States. Verse 2, the rulers of the earth take their stand against Yahweh and against his anointed. God, because of the fetters they feel and the cords they feel bound in the world where Yahweh and his anointed rule. So this is the first scene that we have. This repressed nations, not just one, many nations that feel encumbered by Yahweh and his Messiah which brings us to scene two, the second scene in our cosmic drama. Not only do we see, number one, the rebellion of the nations is questioned in verses one and three, but now, number two, the mockery of the Lord is proclaimed. The mockery of the Lord is proclaimed. And we see this in verse three through six. Excuse me, we see this in verse four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord mocks them. He then speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy. We have jettisoned now away from earth into heaven. We've gone from the war room on earth into the throne room of God. And here we see something that appears only here in Scripture. Namely, the God of all creation, enthroned and seated in a position of ultimate authority and ultimate power, laughing at what he sees transpiring on the globe beneath him. Laughing, not as one who finds the scene behind him or below him comedic in any form of the word, but laughing at the futility and the emptiness of their scheming against him. He is seated which is an expression that is used also in the book of Isaiah, to talk about his, his permanence, to talk about the fact that he is forever the Lord of hosts and forever will he be in a position of true authority. It says in Isaiah 40 verse 22, 
It is he who inhabits above it to inhabit. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth utterly formless. This is the God of Scripture. So he is unmovable. He is on his throne. He is seated as the mark of the true sovereign of all, the sign of unyielding supremacy and might and the unmovable head of the entire universe. And to make this even more specific, the narrator then clarifies for us as to who the actor is and who, what his actions are. And he says that, that none other, verse 4b, that is the Lord God himself, Adonai. Adonai and his laughter is a mocking kind of proclamation of victory over all the rulers of the earth. And after Adonai laughs, he then speaks. But he doesn't speak with laughter, still kind of reverberating. Adonai opens his mouth with his wrath roaring in the background as he terrifies the nations and its rulers. It says in 5b, he terrifies them in his fury. Meaning that what he's about to say, they can hear. What he's about to proclaim, what he's about to tell them from heaven are the very words that they can be understood and make them tremble while on the earth. Again, this is a very, very unique psalm. It's a very, very unique picture. And it makes us take a moment just to piece together what is happening here so far in this cosmic drama. What is it that's occurring? I mean, what kind of feeder is it that allows for God to hear the nations that he has restrained and enable the nations to hear the words from heaven? What kind of scenario is this? When have the nations ever heard of the thunder of God's fury against them in the history of the world. I mean, it's true they have and heard the thunder and the trumpet blast at Sinai in the book of Genesis, but when have the nations ever heard his voice and been terrified? Again, the plot thickens as another piece of the puzzle before us is put into place, a piece that helps us realize that the narrator is painting a picture of a kind of historical drama that is either imaginary or else it's a cosmic drama that is coming in the future. And the nations, verse 6, when we hear the words that the nations hear, it makes them quiver in fear. These words are not spoken as a threat, But the words are spoken as a proclamation of an irreversible fact. Verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. There's a new king in town. New king in town, a new monarch all over the earth that makes the nations realize that all of their plotting, all of their scheming, all of their planning is in vain. There is a king that should be over all the kings and he's being installed. And even though the nations and the rulers had taken counsel against his anointed one in verse 2, now they find out that he is the king, that he is the king that Yahweh placed on the earth to rule in his place, and that realization makes them tremble. They knew he was Yahweh's anointed. They knew he was the one that wanted to tear them away from him. But they knew he was also in concert with God. But now they hear the Lord himself. This is my king. This is my ruler. This is my anointed. And they gasp for air and they shake in their shoes. The king has been set, verse 6b, on Zion. The king will rule 
from Zion. Southwestern city, uh, the city of Jerusalem, but practical purposes, Zion came to mean just Jerusalem itself, just Jerusalem. So this is where the installation is going to take place of this holy king. Whether it be in a palace or whether it be in the temple, the text does not say, but he will be installed on earth before the nations as the king of kings in every sense of the word. So the whole time the nations are plotting, the whole time that they are trying to counsel together for their revolution against him, the whole time they're planning their insurrection, if you will, and growing in their confidence to overthrow this kingdom, the Lord hears and he laughs and he grows in his rage against them until the final moment when they all conspired to unfold in one place. And the revelation that they would hope never would happen, he proclaims from heaven, I have installed a king and he belongs to me. Which brings us to the third scene. The third, the coronation of the Messiah is announced. And we see that in verse 7 through 9. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. This installation of the king, of Yahweh's king, is declared in verse 6. And the details of the coronation now is described in verses 7 through 9. This is what takes place. This is what's going to happen on that day. So verse 7 begins with a very interesting statement that begins this whole announcement. And as you can tell, the translators, at least of the Legacy Standard Bible, have added quotation marks to begin this verse all the way through verse 9. So whoever he is compelled to witness to what he saw at the coronation, that being Yahweh has made a decree. Whatever this decree is, we know that this follows the pattern of Israel's coronation ceremonies because we see the same pattern in the story of Joash, the seven-year-old youth who was installed in the line of David, uh, installed in 2 Kings eleven twelve. 2 Kings eleven twelve. we read this about this installation of the young boy, uh, similar to Josiah, who was installed also as a young boy. But we read this in verse 12. Excuse me, Second Sam. Oh, no wonder I wrote to Second Kings. Oh, it's, it's wonderful when I'm on a roll and then I, 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 I can't find my place because it's so funny, though. I do feel comfort in this. I was going to give Pastor John, he goes, I need a Bible. So I gave him my Bible the other day and he was on stage with uh, John Piper, you know, because he knows where everything is, you know, but because uh, I get he just he looked at it like this. He, he looked at it and he looked at me. He goes, but I, I don't know where anything is. So I go, OK, I'll go get your Bible. Uh, <laughs> just an inside joke there. Um, so we read, and, and again, 2 Kings 11, then he brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony, and they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. So whatever this decree is, we see that first the crown is placed on the boy's head. The testimony or the decree is a copy of the law of Moses to symbolize that the king must rule in accordance with the law. So it's a personal document for the king to review God's covenant commitment to the dynasty of David, and then he would be anointed with oil as the king. So this is the kind of ceremony that we're seeing actually also spoken of here in Psalm 2. The king of Israel, we are told something that was a part of this ancient coordination, 
But everything changes when we hear that because he says, he, Yahweh, said to me. He, Yahweh, said to me. And this shifts everything in the reader's mind. Now, we know that the kings of Israel were called sons of God. We know that because at the very heart of the royal covenant is this concept of sonship. This goes back to the Sinai covenant between God and who is father and Israel who was son. If you want to look that up, you can go to Deuteronomy 131. And then God was supposed to discipline Israel as a father to a son, Deuteronomy 8.5. But specifically in this case, the idea of sonship was also to be applied to the throne of Israel too. Second Samuel, that's where my marker was. Second Samuel chapter 7 describes this covenant with David through the prophet Nathan when he spoke to David. Days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. So this human king was son now to Yahweh. The installation of this king, the coronation of this king is a representation of now I am putting my son into the throne. Yahweh would make the king his son. They would have a father-son relationship. And it was now through the covenant that is eternal, the people affirm that what was happening, and they could hear that, and they could see that this was God's own doing. He would defeat all the son's enemies and make him the greatest king in the world. So this is a kind of, if you are following me, a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as well, when God promised to Abraham, that he would be blessed in such a way that all the nations would covet his blessing and those who belittled him would be cursed. You see that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So therefore, the nation of Israel would be destined to rule the world on God's behalf. That's from the very beginning of the covenants, we find this to be true. And we're told that that next expression during the coronation at the end of verse 7, today I have begotten you, Today I've begotten you is referring to that day of, it says, begotten you, that idea of being adopted by God. So you are my son. I have adopted you into the throne and you now rule as my a king who was king before his installation, but now formally is having the crown placed on his royal head. A king who upon his asking, verse eight and nine says, will receive the nations as his possession. A king who has so much power and might that his scepter is one of iron and his strength is shattering like one who would crush a piece of pottery with ease. It's interesting, during the Puritan Conference, I did ask some of the men from England that were here about uh, Charles III, and they affirmed that though his coronation is coming, he is still legally and rightfully the king. It's just that the inauguration has not yet taken place. Because one day... The coronation will come. One day, the pomp and circumstance will arrive. And one day, what is true in reality will be true in pageantry. So though this psalm was read at the inauguration of the king of being under hardship and, 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 and crushing blows, this psalm was still read because they understood that no king in the history of Israel had ever been on the throne when the entirety of the nations were under his control. 
Never had this psalm been fulfilled in the times of Israel's history. It was pointing to someone. It was pointing to a time that would never come. It was a royal promise, a royal psalm that was lingering over the nation as a hope of that reality. Now, it has been said that 60% of Psalm 2 has either been quoted by the New Testament directly or indirectly. It has been said that if you put all the New Testament parts together, you will have another Psalm 2. And the reason that Psalm 2 is quoted more than any other psalm in the Psalter is because the king of Israel was to come. The son who was to be inaugurated as the king over all the earth was to be the son of God, the go through what the ancients saw but had wished and longed for as I go through some of the verses that speak of this. Now, we already know in Luke chapter 24, 44, that on the road to Emmaus, when once our Lord was resurrected from the dead, he spoke to men on the road and he said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So we know that the Lord is telling us from the very beginning that he is in the Psalms. When God the Father spoke of he- from heaven about Jesus' baptism, he used the words of Psalm 2, 7, this is my beloved son in Matthew three seventeen. If you go to the book of Hebrews, you see from the very beginning that Jesus is greater than the angels and greater than high priest when he says in Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, he says, I will be a son to me. If you go to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, again, Psalm 2 is spoken of when it says, In this way also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is also spoken of from Psalm 2 when you go to the book of Acts. And that's when Peter is preaching. Uh, Peter's preaching in chapter 4, verse 25. And when he starts to speak of Christ as they come out from being in prison, actually, you can start in verse 24. It says, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things the Lord and against their Christ, his Christ? For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Peter understood Psalm 2 as responding and pointing to Jesus. And then even in the book of Acts, again, further down in Acts 13, you see Paul speaking of Psalm 2 as well in verse 33, as he speaks again of the glory of Christ seen in this psalm. Verse 33, well, actually 32, we proclaim to you the good news of promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 relates the vision of the woman Israel bearing the child of Christ or the Christ child with a rod of iron in his hand. The Messiah is Jesus Christ and the one being installed as king who is bowing his head to receive the crown deserves the nation's respect and honor and glory forever, which is our Lord. 
Now, when does this coordination take place? If you're with me, you might be thinking that. So if this is Christ and this is pointing to Christ, even though it was used for other rulers, but this is ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the psalm doesn't say, but there's different views of what could be happening here. When he says this day, today, John Calvin believed that this day referred to the resurrection of Christ according to Romans 1.4, which says, speaking of Jesus, who was designated as the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he thought it was referring to the resurrection. We can't technically be true, uh, know for sure based on the psalm itself. But what we do know is its future. And it's to take place when the nations follow me were all held in the stronghold of Christ. His kingship was manifested in their presence as a sign of their ultimate defeat. Now, think about that and do please turn to the book of Revelation with me because this is a very interesting portion of Scripture which grips my thinking as to what this time might be. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. If you know the book of Revelation, you know that Jesus Christ is ruling the earth for a thousand years at this time. For a thousand years, Jesus Christ rules with perfect peace. But then a very fascinating thing takes place, a rebellion. And you see that in chapter 20, verse 7 through 9. And when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in their four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the saints surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. Even though the earth was full of joy and full of peace and love and wonder, the earth is filled with those who hate Christ at the same time. And they are secretly hiding away from that, waiting to be released by their master Satan to launch this final battle. Paul Benware, theologian, writes, Satan, having been released from the abyss, is able to gather a large number of people against the Lord Jesus These rebels are undoubtedly unsafe people. They were born in the millennial period and outwardly adhere to the principles of the Messiah's kingdom. No, but it is perhaps to give a final grand object lesson concerning the depravity of man, end quote. To me, that seems to be the ultimate setting of Psalm 2. The future, the nations counsel together. They mobilize their forces to rebel against the anointed one, only to have Yahweh laugh in his anger before all the world as he places the crown on the head of his son and gives him the rod of iron in his hand, made for a holy war. But reality is just a holy moment of destruction. There's one last scene, and I'm going to go through it briefly. We've seen the rebellion of the nations is questioned. The mockery of the Lord is proclaimed. The coronation of the Messiah is announced. And now, verses 10 through 12, the worship of the Son is demanded. The worship of the Son is demanded. Back to Psalm 2, starting in verse 10. Oh, insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
before the battle ensues, before blood can be spilt, before souls are going to be damned forever in an unwinnable battle, a warning is offered and worship is demanded. There is much grace in this demand. Though they be kings and judges of the earth, they are implored to wake up, wake up, have wisdom, and worship the king, worship the son. Harry Ironside is a well-known commentator from many years past, and he's often quoted to say that this of it, Ironside would say the four voices in the psalm are of the world in verse 13, uh, excuse me, I think it's in, uh, of, of the world, verse 3, of God the Father in verse 4 through 6, God the Son in verses 7 through 9, and finally here, this is God the Spirit speaking as the narrator. We can't be sure, but the idea is a gripping one, that it would be the Spirit of God, the true narrator, pleading with the rulers of the world to submit themselves in loving submission to Yahweh and to worship or kiss the feet of the Son before they come into judgment. To repent of blatant unbelief requires an acknowledgement of serving the Lord with fear and joy. All the while you tremble because he is both fierce and loving. He is either the source of wrath or he is the cave of refuge. In AD 284, Spain to claim his final victory over Jesus Christ. And it says, quote, for having abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods, end quote. And then just a few years after his death, Constantine came to the throne, the sole emperor of Rome who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. To refuse the sun and the worship of the sun is futile and it's dangerous to the souls of men and women, and especially to rulers themselves. Recently, our own Pastor John MacArthur pleaded the same way to the governor of California with these words. My goal in writing this is not to contend with your politics, but rather to plead with you to hear and heed what the word of God says to men in your position. Let all the kings bow down before him and nations serve him, say Psalm 72, 11. He who rules when the sun rises, 2 Samuel 23, 3-4. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness, Proverbs sixteen twelve. What God said to Cyrus is a truth that you should take to heart. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, Isaiah 45, 5. And this is true for all humanity, not just rulers. All, and there are all included in this. Think of it, all who are in the millennial kingdom, those who have not kissed the sun, people who could actually rule or live in the rule of Jesus Christ for a thousand years, the reality of their sin is still not present to them. They, they still, according to the poll we even heard this morning from Pastor MacArthur, their wrath is coming. There's only one source of protection. There's only one source of shelter. It is the Son of God. It is the Son of God. He is the one who takes the punishment due to all of us. He is the one that you must believe. He is the one that makes you, as verse 12 says, blessed. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Back to Psalm 1 in closing. 
How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 and now Psalm 2. This is the introduction to the Psalms. And it has been open wide for all of us to hear, and it is now needing imitation. It is now the road before us for the Son of God is the King of glory. Father, thank you for this time together where we could examine this wondrous royal psalm that points to your Son, that points to a day when every king shall bow their knee to your Son and all peoples everywhere. For he is the worthy one, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Father, I pray that this psalm would be both a warning to those that have not yet bowed the knee and also an encouragement to those of us who see the world around us in such disarray with things going in the way of the, of the world and in the way of, of imprisonment of sin and and transgenderism and homosexuality, that we see these things as echoes of the world in the book of Revelation. We ask, Lord, to include in the end because your son is our king. And we ask that you might open the hearts of all who do not know him, that they might find ultimate refuge in him and blessing in him alone. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.